All right, I'll be reading Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. And bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. And do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So when Derek asked me to uh, preach, um, I saw what the word for our um, focus was this morning, and it was this word kindness, and I'm not going to lie, my first thought was a little bit of an eye roll. Um, you know, uh, he got to do justice last week, which sounds so like powerful, you know, and exciting, and it's like, kindness, here you go, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. It's kind of a word that's been neutered of a lot of meaning in our, in our culture, like a lot of words have. When I first thought of, I was like, what comes to mind when I think of kindness? Uh, this is going to age me a little bit, but uh, if you're younger than like 30, you may not know this reference, but yeah. <laughs> The old blockbuster thing. So there, you know, back in the day when we had VHSs uh, and you had to manually rewind things, you couldn't just start them over. It was considered quite rude to check things out at Blockbuster or to watch them and not rewind the VHS back to the beginning. So, uh, so yeah, there was this slogan called "Be kind, and rewind," um, and it stuck with me. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about it now, uh, and uh, I've been going with some of my students to the gym at Emory, and I work at Emory. Um, work, uh, campus ministry called Bread Coffee House, and uh, and at the gym, um, there's this common thing about rewacking your weights. You know, there's nothing more annoying than when someone's using something at the gym and they leave all the weights on. Uh, and sorry for all the college students here, but college students generally aren't always thinking about like the fact that their behavior may be impacting someone else's. And so, um, <laughs> it's it's quite often that I walk up and there's just weights everywhere, and I'm like, that's not very kind. <laughs> um, However, I, you know, as I was like, I don't, there's nothing worse than just getting up with like a bunch of cheap slogans or altruisms, you know, like read an Instagram story meme, like be kind, just be kind. Like it, we hear that and it just comes in one ear out the other. It doesn't mean it's not true, but it doesn't mean anything to us. It's easy to ignore and I don't really want to waste y'all's time with that. And so as I was wrestling, that was the tension I felt in this. I was like, how do we talk about kindness in a way that feels a little bit deeper than that? Um, and as it usually happens, when this, um, when this happens to me over the years, is I began to sort of dive into the text, and I found that there's a lot more going on here than what maybe uh, meets the eye as we explore this text. And it has to do with this Hebrew word that is translated as kindness for us today. And the Hebrew word is hesed. Can everyone say it with me? Hesed. You got to get that like phlegmy, you know, sound. I'm not going to do that every time I say it because I will throw up. Um, uh, this word, if you've been around um, the church for a long time, I know Derek did a sermon on this a while back, back in the Uptown days, and I still remember it. It's a really, really important word in the Old Testament. Um, it's used over 240 times, I believe it's 246 times total in the Old Testament. Um, and it's a word to speak of God's faithfulness and his love to us. Uh, now, uh, 
It gets translated a lot of different ways, partly because Hebrew is very difficult to translate. I took undergrad at a Bible college, and as we do, instead of taking like Spanish or French, we gave, were given like ancient biblical languages to take. Um, and so I had the option of taking two years of Greek and, or one year of Greek and one year of Hebrew. And I was like, it'd be really cool to do them both until I was struggling in Greek. And my friend who got an A in Greek switched to Hebrew his second year and was like, I got a 40 on my first exam. I was like, all right, I'm out. I'm not doing it. Like, there's no way. It's too hard. But part of what makes it hard is that there's just a, there's so few words and every word carries so much meaning. And so translating it can be very difficult. And so you see this quite often with this word has said, it's translated as steadfast love, it's your faithfulness. Um, and so uh, to see it translated as kindness is interesting to me. I'd never seen that before. And maybe you've heard this uh, translated as mercy, another way forward. Um, you see it in Psalm 136. It's repeated over and over again. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his said endures forever. To him alone does great works for his has said endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his has said endures forever. And ultimately what this word has said is meant to describe as a type of love, but not the emotional romantic types of love, not a brother or sister type of love. It's a love that comes when one sets one's will to love regardless of how the other responds or even how this you, the lover, feels in the moment. It's a love of commitment, a determined will to love, a loyal love. The closest example I can think of when I think of it in our modern culture is the idea of the marriage vows. Now, this doesn't always look you know, uh, as, uh, as committed as maybe God's um, love for us is, but... I do think it speaks to something about this, this idea that we are making a promise to another person to love um, forever, for the rest of our lives. Uh, I think it's the most important part of the wedding. Now, most brides and grooms wouldn't, wouldn't always say that because if they're spending their time on um, the wedding, it's usually um, you know, uh, flowers or the music or whatever else. And I'm like, what's the vows? I want to know about the vows. When I meet with someone, if they ask me to do the wedding, I'm like, what are your vows? Um, and if, uh, if they tell me they're writing their own, I get a little nervous because they're not always great. Um, I've heard some, uh, I, there was one that was uh, a few years back that was like, I promise to always smile in the mornings when I see you. And I'm like, no, you won't. You're, you're, you're not. I'll give you like three months and that's over. Um, so I feel like a curmudgeon, but I always try to encourage people to stick to the traditional vows because they're just so powerful to me. I mean, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, to sickness and in health, richer or poorer, till death do us part. Like these vows just sum up the whole of the relationship. You know, um, and in that moment, you have no idea what you're really committing to. It's beautiful, everyone's happy, but then later on as things get hard. I mean, my uh, anniversary is coming up Wednesday. Is that right? Yeah, cool. I know the date, like the number, but you know. Um, that's nine years for, for uh, Alicia and I, and, uh, and I had no idea what to expect on that day when we got married nine years ago. Um, but I look back on those vows and I remember the words that I said, and when it gets hard, it's, that's the thing I hold on to, the promise that I make, made. Um, 
And so this word has said, I, I think it speaks to that type of love, that God has made a promise to God's self to love, and that there is nothing that could get in the way of that promise, that God is faithful in that promise to us. Now, to, so before we get into the sort of application piece, because I promise we'll get there, um, we're going to have to do a little bit of a journey through the Old Testament. We're going to read in a handful of verses. I'm going to try to have most of them on, on the screen. Um, stick with me. Uh, if, if you're getting sleepy, I'm sorry. Um, but we're going to get there. This is going to really, I really feel like to totally understand what we are wrestling with this morning, uh, it's going to take a little work to go backwards. And so um, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, the world in which most of the uh, Old Testament was written, uh, there was this uh, prevalent idea of a theology of deeds and consequences. And what I mean by that is that uh, the gods existed to, uh, to pour favor on those who do right and to punish those who do wrong. And you better do right or the gods might come after you. And even though uh, Israel was different in many ways, this, this type of thinking often seeps into the biblical story. You see it all through things like Proverbs, like do right, you know, the wise will get blessed, the, the fool will get punished. Um, and I'm not saying that that's not true. Sometimes you make mistakes and there's consequences, right? Um, but when that becomes the sole mindset we have, it can become problematic. You see this line of thinking in Deuteronomy 13. I believe I have this one on the screen, maybe? Yes. So a little context here. Moses is getting ready to say goodbye to his people. He's taken them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And this is his closing address to the people of Israel. And he tells them, he says, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, okay, uh, it's, it goes on to say I will curse you. Trust me, it's in the Bible. <laughs> what's funny about this text by the way is if you keep reading um, there's a bit of dark humor where Moses ultimately says yeah I said all that stuff you're going to fail at this and it's not going to go well sorry and it's like what that's not very inspiring Moses but that's kind of happens um, so what I find interesting about this is, is that um, this would have been seen and understood as how God loves us he loves us by saying, do this or don't do this, God says, um, as long as you're faithful, we're good. Like I, and, and that's what many would have interpreted something like has said to mean. I teach this Bible class at Emory, um, and uh, it's not real. I, they don't get credit for it, and I don't get paid for it like from Emory, but I enjoy doing it. Um, and uh, in that, one of the things I always say is that uh, there's this real evolution of the way that the... Um, that the, the writers of the Bible understand God, and it's important to pay attention to that because if we go back and just pick one view of God, well, you're not getting the full picture. That God, it's not that God is necessarily changing, but the way that we understand God throughout the text is always evolving. And so if we stopped here, we'd get this view of God that is quite um, black and white. Do right or do wrong. And for many of us, this line of thinking still was prevalent because my son was in... Uh, 
we teach our children this. I mean, the, I was running through this earlier and I had to be careful because my son was in around the corner and I was like, uh-oh. But, uh, you know, Santa Claus, uh, you know, there's the whole song, right? Um, you better watch out. You better not cry. You know, he's got the naughty or nice. So uh, you better be nice. Don't be naughty. Like, and that works for children in some way. Um, but even as we get older, sometimes we keep thinking this way. We think something happens to someone that we don't like or we disagree with and we think they got what they deserved, right? Like that feels good to say that. However, life isn't always that black and white. And thank goodness God is not that black and white. Because if we keep going, something really fascinating happens in the way that the biblical writers begin to understand God. And there's a transformation that happens really around the Babylonian exile. If you know your Bible history, Israel's a nation. Uh, They go from Egypt to becoming their own uh, nation, and and there's this pinnacle with King David, and everything is great, but then the prophets keep warning, hey, remember, do good, or God will bless you. Don't do good, and God will curse you. We're not being faithful to God. God's going to punish us. And so 586 BC, the Babylonian army comes through, and they sack Jerusalem, and they destroy the city, and they bring the Israelites back to Babylon to live as slaves for 80 years. And so in that wilderness, God reveals his character in a new way. God speaks into the brokenness of unfaithful Israel, and he asks for them to return. He has not abandoned them. It felt like he had abandoned them, but he hadn't. And in Jeremiah 3, he says, return faithless Israel. I will look on you and no, I will no longer look on you in anger for I am merciful declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Just acknowledge that you're guilty, that you rebelled against me, and that you scattered your uh, favors under for, among foreigners under every green tree, and that you haven't obeyed my voice. We see the same message in Isaiah 55, 7, where God says, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him just return to the Lord, that he might have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Do you see the change here? It's no longer just black and white, do good or do bad. As long as you're good, God will love you. Now we get this real sense of God's forgiveness, God's grace. And in Israel's failure, God meets them where they are and invites them home, says, come home and I will forgive you. And it's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness and his love for us that despite our response to him, God doesn't give up on us even when we give up on him. And I think in a world that so often sees the love of God as dependent upon us earning his approval in the wilderness, we see a God who is faithful to us and welcomes us back like the prodigal son returning home, where God meets us with open arms. And I I think if the story stopped here, we'd all be pretty happy. I mean, this is great. Like we get to exchange a love that feels very hard to achieve with one that's always available to us as long as we're willing to turn back to God. Yes, God is faithful. God never fails. But surely we have some personal responsibility in this whole project, right? And here's where I think the fullest revelation of God's faithfulness to us blows the doors off even those limitations. And we see it in Jeremiah 33, where it seems like God has just gotten tired of waiting on Israel to come back. And he says, I will restore the fortunes of Israel. I will rebuild them. I will cleanse them of all their guilt. I will forgive them of all their iniquity. For they shall fear and tremble because of all the good 
and all the prosperity that I will provide for them. There's no mention of uh, expectations. There's no mention of a return. God just says, I'm going to do this thing. In Ezekiel 34, after a little bit of a rant about how bad the Israelite kings were, God says, I will be your king. I'll be your shepherd. I'll make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will destroy the fat and the strong, and I will feed them with justice. God is saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to wait on you because I love you that much. And I'm frustrated from waiting. So I will act. And one of the most profound, this is the last one for a moment, text in the Old Testament, Hosea 11. We see this incredible picture of God as this parent of Israel. And Hosea 11 begins with Israel as this infant baby where God is held as they cried, who has grown to this like toddler who gets into trouble, but ultimately is, you know, it's a kid to the teenager where it's like Israel has like said, I hate you, mom, and slammed the door and went back to their room. And now God in this moment of uh, feeling abandoned says in verse eight, he says, how can I give up on you? How could I hand you over, O Israel? How could I make you like Sodom? How could I treat you like Gomorrah? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So all of that, to me, is so vital to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about this idea of hesed. That the hesed of God is not just for those of us who get it right. The hesed of God is not just for those who feel sorry and come back. Not that those, I'm not saying that's not important, God wants us to turn around and to return. But God's love is not dependent on that. Because the hesed of God is a, a love that is so faithful that no matter what, God will act and will come to us in our brokenness to make things right. It's a love of God that says, I want you, I choose you. So back to our text this morning and how it applies to us. For one, it would be very difficult to say that we should treat everyone that way, right? Um, however, I do think on some level that's the call to begin to see the world through the eyes of God and to see the people in our lives through the eyes of God and I, with eyes that do not give up, with eyes that, see, that are faithful in love because God is faithful to us. And as we talk about last week's sermon about justice, this idea that God cares passionately about the brokenness in our world and wants to make things right, I think it's vital that we pair that with this idea of God's kindness, his faithfulness and his kindness to us. And to, that to be a people of God, we seek justice, but we seek it with, these, um, with the love and grace and, um, and healing nature of God's love, that we go into those broken places not to condemn, but to heal. And I think that's very hard for us, especially in our culture right now. I think justice almost sounds easy. Like, let's go out and punish those who've done wrong. Let's go out and, and um, 
You know, if somebody makes a mistake, I'm going to go after them. I'm going to tear them apart because I'm right and you're wrong. And that's happening on every side of every equation. It's just this sense of like, you know, let's get them. Let's attack them. And it feels good. But maybe the harder thing to do is to seek justice through grace and kindness. Through the love of God. Where we look at the world not as those who are right and wrong, who are bad and good, but as children of God who, who like us, are broken and who, like us, need to be healed. And without the kindness of God, the call to justice is always going to be a temptation for us to just become angry, judgmental people who are more concerned with being right than we are with loving those around us. Uh, when I was in college, uh, my, I grew up a uh, small town, uh, Southern Baptist, not hating on Southern Baptists, by the way, but that was my culture growing up. And I was given a very small view of a lot of things. Um, and, uh, but I loved it. I loved church. And so I was, I was deeply passionate about it um, and about my belief system and all of that. And then I went to a, a Bible college that uh, was not Southern Baptist and, uh, and very quickly was being challenged on a lot of the things that my parents had taught me. And that freaked me out because I was like, what? That, there has to be just one way to believe. And, uh, and over the course of the f- first few months of my freshman year, I began to realize so much of what I was taught was uh, limited, if not wrong, um, about God. And so uh, I began to really explore other ways of viewing God and about reading, viewing the Bible. And I got, got really excited about that. And then there was a moment where I was like, I'm going to go home at Christmas. I'm going to like show my mom how smart I am and how dumb all of her opinions are about these things. And it's going to be awesome. And I I did. I came home one, that freshman year, Christmas, um, and I was like, Mom, look, look, this thing you believe, uh, it actually is not historical. It was like 200 years ago the church started believing it, and, you know, you're wrong, and look how smart I am. Um, and it was a lot, like, angrier than that, to be honest. Like, I was, like, excited to, like, kind of dunk on my mom, which is uh, embarrassing. Um, and so she listened and processed it, and I came away from that, like, look how much I know. Like, look how smart I am. And then I, but I had this like weird feeling, you know, those feelings where like a conversation happens and you felt like something was wrong, but you don't know what it was, but you're like, I think I did something wrong. Um, and so as I sat in that and thought about it, I, and, and over the course of the next year or two, I, I kept coming back to that conversation. And over time, I began to realize that like, I didn't really cause a lot of hurt in that conversation. Like, um, my mom sent this like sweet kid away to college and I come back for Christmas and I'm just like kind of an ass. Um, and she's like, something can't be right in that. Um, and a few years later we talked about it and she was like, yeah, I didn't like that version of you. And I was like, to be honest, I didn't like that version of me. And here's the thing, like I, I, for the most part, I think I was right, but I wasn't kind and I wasn't loving and it did more harm than good to go into that and that with that perspective. And thankfully, my mom's great and very forgiving, and we're all good now. She didn't abandon me or anything like that, but you know. Um, so when I think about this idea of kindness, what does it mean for us to be kind? It's not some empty platitude, just be nice. And it doesn't ignore the fact that people are often terrible to us. It doesn't mean that we just forgive and forget and move on and just let people walk all over us. Absolutely not. But it does mean that we try to be a people 
who are more committed to the love and healing and restorative grace of God in us and through us than we are to being right. And we're willing to take that into our relationships and into the broken places of the world. And I think that's a, that's a people of God, that's a, that's a group of people that if we can embody that could be very transformational in the world. That we don't, need, we don't really care that much about being right in an argument or winning or being on the right team. But we care about God's restorative kindness. And we understand that we are broken people and that God loves us first and foremost. And so the brokenness in our world is also deserving of God's love. I want to close by reading from 1 John chapter 4. Got it on my. I literally left and didn't bring my Bible. Um, pretty great. In First John chapter four, John says, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And in this love." Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I'm going to pray for us as we close. God, thank you so much um, that you love us. And in the worst moments of our life, when we feel so far from you, you reach out to us. And God, I pray that we never lose sight of that. And God, as we, uh, as we are often in broken places with broken people, people who want to hurt us or um, do, do all manner of things, God, that we never lose sight of that. And God, that uh, we can try to enter into those places with a little bit of grace. And God, I just thank you that you, um, your love never fails. And God, I pray that, that that same love, that same kindness would, would grow in each and every one of us more and more this week, this year. It's in your name we ask all these things. Amen.